Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here we try to make keeping up with the literature easy. It's like having the latest research spoon-fed to you straight through your earbuds. Now then, what we'll be covering this week is, first off, we have the causes of peri-intubation cardiac arrest, then a cocktail for post-traumatic headaches, after that, the scoop on antibiotics for otitis media with effusion, is it really necessary? Then a good reason to pan scan, we all want one of those, and then finally, we follow that up with the risks of CT scanning. This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the sparkling Aaron Lacey, Jonathan Brewer, and Clay Smith. Now then, let's get to it. The first article is titled Peri-Intubation Cardiac Arrest in the Emergency Department, a National Airway Registry NEAR study out of the Journal of Resuscitation. See, now, most patients that are going to need intubation probably aren't doing so hot, you know, to start out with. The last thing you need is a peri-intubation arrest. It's rare, but it can happen, and it probably might happen to you one day. So knowing the risk factors that you can look out for is critical to preventing this. This study was a secondary analysis of the NEAR data. So out of 16,000 intubations, about 1% had peri-intubation cardiac arrests. And what they found in terms of risk factors was essentially things that we mostly know already. So I'll list them off from most risky to least risky. First off, if your patient is hypotensive, that is a systolic blood pressure less than 100, then if they're hypoxemic with a saturation less than 90, or if the intubation was done urgently, that being without time to properly prepare, i.e. probably pre-oxygenate, then the odds of arrest were higher in all of these cases. And the adjusted odds ratios aren't wimpy either. These are pretty good numbers. For hypotension, it was an adjusted odds ratio of 6.2. And you then half that for hypoxemia for 3.1, and you can half that again to 1.8 for if you were just in a rush. These are largely factors that we have some control over, at least partially. So aggressively resuscitating patients prior to intubating them, no matter how much of a hurry you're in, is going to be important. Even apneic oxygenation could help, so pre-oxygenate, 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 even if that's just putting in some nasal prongs and cranking that baby up to 50. It probably won't hurt, at the very least. In a spoonful again and again, these same factors come up. So even if peri-intubation cardiac arrest is uncommon, it can still be made further uncommon by trying to avoid things like hypotension, hypoxemia, and being in too much of a rush. And that will lead us to our second paper, which was titled Randomized Study of Metoclopramide Plus Diphenhydramine for Acute Post-Traumatic Headache out of the Journal of Neurology. Now, one of the most common causes of headaches in the emergency department are migraines. To treat them, we typically use a nice little cocktail of metoclopramide plus diphenhydramine. Now, another cause of headache in the emergency department can be post-traumatic. The etiologies are a little bit different, but the head hurts in both cases, so why not try the treatment for one as the treatment for the other? To test this, these authors organized a randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trial with patients who suffered moderate to severe post-traumatic headache, and that trauma had to have happened in the last 10 days. They then randomized these patients to either receive a migraine cocktail of IV metoclopramide at 20 milligrams plus IV diphenhydramine at 25 milligrams, or they just got a placebo. So looking at 80 patients per group and looking at pain after one hour on a 10-point scale, the treatment group had better pain reduction. They had a reduction of 5.2 points uh, versus just the placebo, which had a reduction of 3.8 points. And there was no differences at one week. Now, as you'd expect, there's more side effects in the treatment arm. 43% of these patients actually had side effects, which were drowsiness, akathisia, and diarrhea mostly. 
So if this cocktail at least kind of works for pain, then you could offer it to your patients. Though, as our author Aaron points out, it'd be nicer to see this cocktail compared to something more like ibuprofen or acetaminophen, which are always great places to start for pain management. Now, in a spoonful, compared to placebo, metoclopramide plus diphenhydramine, the classic migraine cocktail, was able to reduce pain in post-traumatic headaches. And then third, we have the article titled Antibiotics for Otitis Media with Effusion in Children out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. This is a pretty hot topic. People like to talk about this, and they usually come down on one side or the other, though I feel like evidence is slowly pushing us in one direction. Anyway, so what we're talking about is acute otitis media with effusion. This isn't that hot, red, angry, pus-filled ear. This is just a little bit of fluid, maybe some air bubbles behind the TM. And then, you know, this is what the pediatric gurus are going to see very clearly and go, ah, yes, effusion. And you might be a little bit less sure about that. I know I am when I look in an ear sometimes. If these effusions persist, they can cause hearing loss and even impact language and cognitive development in children, so it can be very important. The current guidelines don't recommend any treatment unless it's persistent, in which case ENT can put in those little tubes. Some recommendations seem to say that antibiotics could give a faster recovery from these effusions, though. But is that even true, and is it worth it if it is? This paper was a summary of the Cochrane Review on the very same topic, and they saw that the evidence all pulled together that was indeed, yes, antibiotics will shorten the duration of the effusion for more resolutions after two to three months, and there was a 25% risk difference to give a number needed to treat of about five. On the other side of the coin, is side effects though. So antibiotics have side effects. Things like diarrhea, vomiting, rash, these are all common. And so there was an absolute risk difference for side effects of about 20%. So a number needed to harm very similar to our number needed to treat, both about five. So this might sound pretty equivocal, but remember that resolving effusions more quickly isn't actually the outcome that's important here. What we care about is hearing loss, which can cause developmental and cognitive impairments. That's what's important. That's a patient-centered outcome. So you're getting side effects without the benefit that you necessarily want. If the effusion is persistent, then these people should follow up with ENT, who can assess if they want to put in tubes. And now you can feel a little bit more reassured about not seeing exactly what's behind that TM because you're not going to give antibiotics either way. Now in a spoonful, the Cochrane review of the literature concluded that the harms outweigh the benefits for giving antibiotics to speed the recovery of acute otitis media with effusion in children. And after that, we have the fourth article titled Early Head-to-Pelvis Computed Tomography in Out-of-Hospital Circulatory Arrest Without Obvious Etiology out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Now many of the patients that are going to arrive to the ER are going to arrive with CPR in progress. Big shout out to our EMS colleagues who make that possible. Thank you very much. Fortunately, these are not typically very communicative patients, and the cause of their out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is rarely going to be obvious. We really rely on a good history and physical to do the majority of our detective work. In these cases, pan-scanning the patient from head to pelvis is tempting and could help in your workup. Now, this kind of sounds like the not-so-generous stereotype of ER doctors that just want to pan-scan patients, but really, what's the yield and is it safe? This was an observational study of 104 patients who presented with idiopathic out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and achieved ROSC. They were then afterwards enrolled to have what the authors called a sudden death CT protocol within six hours of arrival or no scan at all. This protocol was essentially a pan scan. 
So a non-contrast head CT, an electrocardiogram gated cardiac and thoracic CT angiogram, and a non-gated venous phase abdominal pelvic CT angiogram. Any patient too unstable for this or if they had to go to the cath lab was excluded. So in this study, scans happened within one to three hours of arrival to the hospital and identified 39% of all causes of the out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, which was 95% of all the cases that could have been found on CT. Now, 13% of those found causes would not have been detected with standard of care without a CT. So if you take 13% of that 39%, then we get about 5% of these people definitely needed a CT either way, and we preemptively gave them one. So most of these causes would have been found anyways. This scan was also useful for finding the complications of the resuscitation though, which were seen in 16% of these patients. Now in terms of safety, they mostly just looked at renal events. And there was AKI in 28% of these patients with only one patient requiring dialysis. But you have to keep in mind that there's an expected transient change in kidney function following an arrest. So it's likely that a lot of these AKIs were not due to the contrast, but likely due to the arrest itself. No other safety concerns were found, though we'll touch on that in Article 5. And now the spoonful from this article. A CT scan from head to pelvis in patients with ROSC after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, where the cause isn't clear, appears to be safe and it has contributing findings in a fairly large number of cases. Though you have to be wary, these aren't patient-centered outcomes that were measured in this study. And that brings us to the last article, which was titled The Risk of Hematological Malignant Neoplasms from Abdominal Pelvic Computed Tomography Radiation in Patients Who Underwent Appendectomy Out of the JAMA Surgery. So speaking of the risks of CT scanning, it's easy to forget that there are indeed not just short-term risks like AKI, but also long-term risks, things like increase in the occurrence of cancer due to the radiation that comes along with the CT scan. There are already great papers on this, but often the data is muddied because it's hard to separate out if having cancer might have made you more likely to get a CT in the first place, and thus the occurrence rates are going to be higher than they should be. To help with that, this study only looked at patients who had a CT to rule out appendicitis and all of them had appendectomies, meaning that the reason for the CT almost definitely wasn't some hidden cancer. So this was a large population-based study out of South Korea of 825,000 people who had appendectomies for acute appendicitis. Some had CTs and some didn't. At two years, the incident rate of hematological malignancies for the CT-exposed group was 26% higher than those who were not CT exposed. This effect was mostly driven by the younger age group. So those less than 15 actually had a 214% increased chance of a hematological malignancy. Then no change in any of the other cancers was seen though, but keep in mind this was only two year follow-up. Now this sounds really scary, an increase of almost a quarter in your risk of cancer, but you have to keep it all in perspective. Around 20% of people will die from cancer at baseline. If a CT scan, which don't forget, could save your life, increases your chances to 20.1% instead of just 20%, then the needle really hasn't moved that much. That said, always think twice about ordering anything with radiation exposure in children. In a spoonful, a CT abdomen pelvis is associated with a higher incidence of hematological malignancies over a two-year span, especially in younger patients. All right, let's bring it all back. What did we learn today? To avoid peri-intubation arrest, don't rush and try to resuscitate as well as possible before intubation. Try to get rid of as much hypotension and hypoxemia as possible before getting that tube in. 
Next, the migraine cocktail of metoclopramide and diphenhydramine also works at least moderately for post-traumatic headaches. And then antibiotics might clear otitis media with effusions faster, but the risk of antibiotics just isn't worth it. Fourth, pan-scanning patients with idiopathic out-of-hospital cardiac arrest after they've achieved ROSC seems to be safe, and it may be helpful in finding the cause of the arrest as well, or at least ruling out other life-threatening diagnoses. And then from the last article, CTs are so, so valuable, and they save many lives, but should always be used with some thought towards the risks. This study showed an increase in hematological malignancies after CT in just the following two years. This is especially important in children. And that wraps us up. So you've earned them. We offer them. CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org, where at the very same place you can find all the articles that I've summarized today. And if you haven't already, you can sign up for our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the literature one spoonful at a time. Thank you.